Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit Spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley, in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megan Kelly. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show. Today on the program, we've got Amy Chua. You know who she is. She is a professor. She's the John M. Duff Professor of Law at Yale Law School. She's one of their most popular professors for reasons that will become obvious to you. She's married to another Yale professor. And she's got two young daughters while well, they're in their 20s now who are one's a double Harvard person, one's a Harvard Yale person. So she's done pretty well in raising really smart kids. She also happens to have written a couple of years ago the book Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother talking about the difference between her approach and the approach of many Chinese moms. And she says that that can include people who are not Chinese and more Western parents who are more like protect little Johnny's feelings. Um, She's got really fun parenting thoughts and she took a beating for some of them, but she's really honest and owns who she is. So you're going to like that piece of the conversation. She also happens to have predicted Donald Trump's win. Um, She understands one thing that most people don't, and that's tribes, tribalism. She wrote a whole book on it and has a very interesting view on how we got to where we are as this country and whether we're going to go more tribal as things go on now that, you know, Trump is lost and Biden's going to be sworn in. So uh, this is somebody who's at an elite university. She's going to talk about the partisanship there, what it's like to be a conservative on Yale campus. Can you imagine? She's got some thoughts on how things have changed from just a few years ago. And I think you're going to love her. We'll get to her in one second. But first, I shared a hot story a couple of weeks ago, and it nearly crashed the Scoremaster website. The story is that the average American has 97 points, 97, that they can quickly add to their credit score. That's big, but most people have no idea how to get it. Well, here is the info. See, Scoremaster credit scientists discovered an algorithm that will super boost your credit scores, not just a few points, but 97 points fast, all of you. They could go way up. You don't have to take these crappy loans at these terrible rates. Improve your credit score with ScoreMaster. Imagine 97 points on top of your existing score. It's super important if you're refinancing your home or buying a car or applying for credit in any way. Let's say you have okay credit and you're buying a car. If you go to ScoreMaster first and boost your credit score just the average of 61 points, you could save 9,000 bucks on your car loan. And if you go to ScoreMaster and boost your credit just the average, before applying for a home score, you could save almost 100000 over the life of your loan. If you own a business, same thing. If you're going to get a loan to fund projects or whatever, super boost your business credit score before you do it. It can save you a fortune. ScoreMaster will put 
you in control of your finances. You can enroll in minutes and see how many plus points ScoreMaster can add to your credit score. Visit scoremaster.com slash MK. That's scoremaster.com slash MK. Amy Chua, how are you? I'm great, Megan. Thank you so much for having me. I am delighted to be speaking with you. I've, I'm such a fan of yours. I always have been ever since you came out with Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother. And I thought, this is one brave woman. I loved it because you were getting so much shit. And you were like, yeah, I don't care. This is how I feel. <laughs> that's how it was on the outside. <laughs> that's how it was on the outside. But yes, that's that's basically me. We met for the first time in person when I was doing a profile on J.D. Vance. And I went to Yale Law School to talk to you as the person who had encouraged him as his professor to write that memoir, but, and, and, and now we've become friends, but I, I'm just so inspired by your toughness. You are one tough M ever. <laughs> you are. <laughs> well, coming from you, that means so much. I mean, obviously um, I'm a huge fan of yours and I would say the same thing, but um, yeah, it'll be fun to talk about this. I don't even, I don't even see myself that way, but kind of looking back, it, it does seem like, um, yeah, it does seem like I'm still standing. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And you're just, you know, you're exactly what we need right now, which is somebody who is unapologetic for how she sees the world. And and Thank unless you. we get more Amy Chua's in the world, we're going to lose these bizarre cultural battles that I won't even say we're fighting. It's more like rational people have surrendered out of fear. We, we yeah, need to start fighting. Rough. Yeah, it's starting. People are starting to fight, but we need more, more numbers and more just toughness, mental toughness in the world. All right. So before we get to all that, because I definitely want to ask you about Battle Helm of the Tiger Mother, um, it's it's exactly the opposite of my own parenting style, but it's it's my wannabe parenting style. So you're going to help me. <laughs> okay, we'll get to that. Let's start with tribalism. You wrote a book in 2018 on tribalism called Political Tribes, Group Instinct and the Fate of Nations, which was prescient. And it not only obviously we were in the middle of the Trump administration then, but it foresaw where things would go, including the challenging of electoral results. And like that here we are. So you have accurately diagnosed, I think, what is happening to the United States right now, right before he was elected during his term and now in 2020. And I want to talk to you about how we got here and where we go from here, because it doesn't sound too promising. Um, all right. So you're you're. Theory is that a toxic mix of identity politics and demographic transformation is threatening our democracy. So break that down. Should we start with, well, where should yeah. we start? Yeah, no, that's actually perfect. So so you have it exactly right. I mean, I'm proud that I um, did correctly predict the Trump election, um, and which is pretty amazing because teaching at the most liberal college campus, you know, everybody had the Hillary party's all ready to go. And I just knew that there was so much underground that nobody was allowed to talk about <laughs> that they were going right. to get it wrong. But yeah, and that's kind of what I try to do is be above the fray um, and kind of to diagnose the problem. Why are we at this moment and seeing everything that we're seeing? Because if you can't, if you don't know the causes of the problem, then you can't solve it. And yes, I think there are two big factors that explain um, this this kind of just hatred that we have uh, everywhere in this country. And the first is this massive demographic transformation that we've seen in the last 50 years. So basically, for most of the, America, uh, the United States 200-year history, 
um, you know, the country was dominated economically and politically and culturally by a white majority. And we can debate what white meant and that, you know, different people counted as white at different times, but that's basically the dynamic. And when that happens, when one group is so overwhelmingly dominant, a lot of terrible things can happen like slavery and oppression. But that white majority can also afford to be more generous and inclusive. Um, and that's actually what the white Protestants did in the 50s and 60s and 70s when they essentially voluntarily opened up the Ivy League to more African-Americans and minorities because they just kind of felt that was the right thing to do. Right now, it's completely different because for the first time in U.S. history, whites are on the verge of losing their majority status at the national level. Um, the Census Bureau says it'll happen around 2044. You know, there's some debate about what it will look like, but it's already happened in places like California and DC and Texas and tons of big cities. Non-Hispanic whites are no longer um, the majority. And why is that important, Megan? Because studies show um, that it's when people feel threatened that they retreat into tribalism. And at this moment, it's not just minorities who feel threatened. Whites feel threatened. Um, it's not just uh, Jews and Muslim Americans who feel threatened, but Christians feel threatened. So, you know, with Donald Trump in the White House, women feel threatened with the Me Too movement, men feel threatened, Latinos, Asians, straights, gays, everybody at this moment feels threatened. And again, it's when people feel threatened that they retreat into this kind of us versus them tribalism. And that's why you're seeing this fracturing, this splintering um, on both the right and the left. I mean, if you look at the Democrats, they're just fall apart. There's so many different pieces. And same with the Republicans. You know, there's barely a cohesive group called the Republicans. And, and that's partly because of this massive demographic change. So that's one big factor. Um, and before we get to number two, so tribalism, and, you know, I think people understand a bit that we feel more tribal, we, we feel more dug into our respective groups than ever. But but in general, you, you talk about tribalism and, and how it could potentially be a good thing, but it could also be a bad thing. And one of the reasons we do it is because A, we're humans and B, it feels good. Right. So but so just talk about before we get to number two and the reason why we're becoming more tribal. Why is tribalism such a thing for us as humans? Well, so first of all, it's just in us. We are biologically predisposed to be tribal, just like fellow primates. And you could obviously imagine all the evolutionary reasons why, you know, it was always better to have a family and a group and a tribe as opposed to being on your own. Um, and you just, you put it perfectly. There's nothing inherently wrong with tribalism. Um, families can be very tribal. I will be the first to admit that I'm a very tribal person, very loyal to my friends. Um, sports is very tribal and it's fun. The real problem is when tribalism takes over a political system. That's really the problem um, because then policy and facts just don't matter. You basically just, you just want to cling to your side. You see everything through your side's lens. Um, and you want to take down the other side, no matter what. And you could see that, you know, all my friends, I mean, Yale, again, is the most progressive place. So for four years, all my friends are like, oh, my God, look at this scandal. This is the end of Donald Trump, you know, and mm -hmm. you check out the polls. No change. <laughs> you know, It's just right. it's like people are dug in. 
And uh, even the pandemic has been tribalized. I mean, for me to figure out whether a certain drug works, I have to flip between Fox and MSNBC to see what they're saying mm-hmm. and you know take an average. But but that's really where we are now. Where the danger is that we can't talk to each other anymore. You know, you it's it's not just like Republicans or see. It's not that people see you know people who voted for the other side as just you know people who are wrong that they want to argue with. We're in a situation now where we see people who voted for the other side as enemies, as evil murderers, you know, people who harm people. And that's really dangerous. It's a recipe for civil war if we don't fix it, if you if you view half the country as un-American. Mm-hmm. So this is why when people say, oh, you know, if if Trump loses or now that Trump's lost, the, the country's going to go back to normal. We're going to settle down. I imagine you're thinking, mm, Crazy. no. Yeah, crazy. Not so much. I mean, all the dynamics are still there. And the reason I predicted that Trump would win is because, um, I mean, while clearly his personality had a lot to do with it, um, you know, I, a bit like Hugo Chavez in, in a totally different way, uh, you know, very effective. Um, but there were just conditions, things that were already in the United States. So, he, you know, that phenomenon was just waiting to happen. And those, those facts and conditions are still existing today, even with the change in leadership. All right. So we were primed for someone like Trump to come along. Number one, so because we're getting more tribal and the reasons are, number one, this massive demographic transformation, becoming a minority majority country. Everyone feels threatened. The the whites, I know in your book, you, you cite the fact that 50 plus percent of whites believe, quote, whites have replaced blacks as the primary victims of discrimination. So we're all retreating to our little mini tribes and not feeling very generous toward other people. But the other big reason you cite is cosmopolitan elites, the coastal (laughs) rich people who look down on the working class people of America. Do I have it right? You do have it right. I'm so impressed, Megan. And and of course, this is the group that, you know, we more or less belong to. So I I understand. Um, But yeah, just kind of backing up quickly for most of my 25 years as a professor, I've written about developing countries and foreign policy. And I always said the United States is so lucky that we don't have this one terrible problem that I called a market dominant minority. And this is this weird thing where like in Indonesia, you have like this 3% tiny Chinese minority. So they're not Indonesian, right? Like the 80 million people are mostly Indonesian, but there's this tiny 3% minority that is ethnically Chinese, and they're viewed as these arrogant people that control everything, and they talk their own way, and they marry their own people, and they just look down on all the poor people. And what I wrote um, you know, in 2000 is that when you have that kind of a dynamic, when you have elections, democratic elections, you don't get what Americans always expect, which is peace and prosperity, but you get like demagogues coming in and saying, vote for me. It's all these people's fault. They're not real Americans. And you get scapegoating and then you get this kind of populism. And that's basically, you know, for years we didn't have that because we don't, you know, we don't have a little minority controlling the U.S. economy. It's not true that Jews control the U.S. economy. They're disproportionately successful as our you know, Asian Americans, but they don't control the economy. But today, for the first time, because of something we'll get to, I think the way our education system is broken, um, there's just so little mobility now. And, you know, you have 
what we see is basically this emergence of a group that I call cosmopolitan elites. They mostly live on the coast, but also in cities like Atlanta or Chicago that are viewed by the rest of this country as these arrogant people that care about the poor in Africa more than they care about the poor in Appalachia, whom they disdain, um, and who kind of go to the same private schools and use their own politically correct vocabulary and control Hollywood and Wall Street and Silicon Valley and DC. Um, and, and I do see that the election in 2016 followed this prediction that I, I actually said. I said, you're going to see this backlash against this little group. And it's it's not ethnic or racial. Like Barack Obama, J.D. Vance wrote this, is the classic is viewed actually as the most cosmopolitan elite. He's, he sounds like a professor. He dresses so elegantly. Um, mm-hmm. But but it's kale, <laughs> right? Healthy foods and um, <laughs> and so it's a, an identifiable group um, that is viewed as very very uh, kind of selfish and scornful of the rest of the country. And I do I think part of the 2016 election was uh, you know uh, t- President Trump. Trap, tapped right into that and said, look, let's take back our country you know, for real Americans. Let's make America great again. Mm-hmm. And and it's so it's not de- dependent on race. You point out Barack Obama and it's not dependent on party because I would say Mitt Romney falls directly into this right. group. You got it. You got it. Yes. Actually, yeah. probably most people that you and I know, <laughs> uh, it's um, it's it's just by virtue of the schools that we attend and the fact that, you know, Ethnic groups are often defined by intermarriage. So if you have two groups like black and white Zimbabweans that don't intermarry at all, that's like an ethnic difference. Um, Like Chinese and Indonesians, they don't really marry because one is Muslim and one is ethnic Chinese. Well, the the sort of whites have um, the difference between poor whites now, you know, Appalachian whites, rural, essentially President Trump's base and coastal cosmopolitan whites, that difference has hardened so much. There is so little interaction and so little intermarriage between these two groups of whites that it's basically what social scientists would call an ethnic divide. I mean, there's that much difference. It's much more normal for, let's say, a um, Caucasian who attended Columbia Law School or NYU Law School to marry somebody who's Nigerian-American or South Asian of a similar educational background than it is for that white person to marry another white person from, say, rural Kentucky. Mm-hmm. So why why would they go for a person like Trump, who is very wealthy, flying around in helicopters, has his name on buildings, went to Wharton? What What is it about him specifically? If you just look at Donald Trump and why all of our, my friends, our cosmopolitan elite friends, just despise him, there you have your answer. Um, he actually kind of mm-hmm. culturally and sociologically it doesn't act like a cosmopolitan elite. The way he dresses, people made fun of that red tie that hung too low. He eats McDonald's and, you know, these taco <laughs> bowls. And he deliberately plays up this political incorrectness, you know. So, so you know, again, a lot of liberals, they're like, oh, my gosh, he said this, you know, he's that's sexist, that's racist. But what happened is just a lot of people in the middle of the country said, wait a second, that's kind of how I talk. And I'm always getting called out now for being racist or sexist. I'm using the wrong word. I relate to that. You know, and mm-hmm. he liked um, world WWE wrestling and NASCAR. These are things that are anathema to cosmopolitan elite. So, you know, and even the way in which he was rich, uh, you know, displayed the gold and, and Melania Trump and 
it's again, cosmopolitan leagues don't realize how kind of intolerant and snobby we are. Everyone's like, oh, that's so gauche, you know, you know, mm-hmm. those colors that, you know. Um, so I think culturally, he and, and and he, I think he cultivated this. He's actually much more similar to um to his base, you know, to, to blue-collar workers, the way he talks and rambles on and um kind of locker room and what he yep. eats. Yeah, I think it really fits actually. So they're they're the the masses who we're talking about, they're not anti-wealth. They're they really are anti-elitism. Completely. And this is another big irony. Um I think. I think we'll come to this, but many of the people I think most in favor of socialism that I know actually come from very privileged backgrounds. They're they're living in their hedge fund parents' huge lot, so they have time to be advocating for socialism. Um, so, and whereas a lot of both working class people, where you know they want a fair shot. I mean, a lot of people want more, better redistribution. But no, they they want the American dream. They they want the chance to become like somebody like Donald Trump. Um, and you know, same with immigrants and immigrants' kids. That's another. I've had so many students whisper to me, you know, on campus now. I, I you know I had a Iraqi American student whose dad lived in a refugee camp and she was really poor and she would love to be a partner in a law firm and go to wall street or maybe become a judge and she's being told by all her progressive friends no that's buying into the hierarchy that's too elitist you know you need to be protesting and being an activist oh my i know and so she's whispering to me what am i going to do i I always thought the way to to change america was if somebody like me you know somebody from a poor country could rise and actually be prominent and influential what am i going to do no go get yourself arrested that's the way it's done (laughs) be a jane fonda get arrested and make sure everybody writes an article about it there's room for all types is my point (laughs) (laughs) well it's funny because you know when you see to your point the mugshots of these people who get arrested at some of the protests and, and riots that we saw over the summer. It's nine times out of 10 it is white women in their mid to young twenties <laughs> who come from very privileged backgrounds and they, they look like they're hot messes. I mean, half of them have like, you know, a black guy or, you know, they look like they've been on drugs. I don't know what the story is, but it's almost never, or you certainly don't see, you know, a lot of black people getting arrested. It's these white educated, rich liberals, because some people will do a deep dive on the background, the economic background, a lot of these women, and they do to a person come from rich backgrounds. Yeah. A lot of people who have nine to fives kind of working class people actually can't take off time. They're going to be fired, you know? So, so there's actually a sort of a simple economic explanation for it. Um, uh, But yeah, it's, it's, there are a lot of ironies. Well, this is an interesting thought. I, we talk a lot about the media on this on this podcast and for obvious reasons. But one of the things that we haven't touched on is their elitism. You know, their bias is right there in our faces and we know it. And we talk about what happened to CNN and how it's it's totally anti-Trump and it's very biased without disclosing it, without owning it, I should say. Um, but this is another strain. You know, one of the most viral clips of the entire election season was a segment hosted by Don Lemon with two pundits. It was Rick Wilson and Wajahat Ali. And um, they were disdainful of flyover country, of Trump voters. 
They were making fun of him with Southern accents. Oh, oh, those Republicans are they uh, sort of imitating them going like, oh, you know, Biden and the Democrats with their their maps and their math. And they were hysterical laughing at the other side of the country, who we now know is almost split right down the middle, 74 million people. How big a factor do you think that was the continuation of the deplorables attitude? I, I think it's a big factor. I mean, uh, I didn't see that clip, but it's uh, it, it's it's just it's actually just such a poor political and strategic move. Um, you know, even if you just forget about just common decency and 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 just being more generous towards fellow human beings. But yeah, I, I think it's a really um, you know we all know human nature. Like it, it, you just have to think if you hear somebody talking about you like that. How do you feel? Do you feel like, you know what, I want to convert and be on their side mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or and that's the danger of tribalism. You, you, when you hear the way people are talking about you, you get angry inside and it just everything spirals downwards. More with Amy in just one minute. But first, I want to talk to you about Legacy Box. This is an effortless way to digitally preserve your home movies and photos so that you never have to wonder where they are or whether they are safe. You know, like now that the holidays are over, you got two big questions to deal with. How long should the tree stay up? Mm, Long, I think. Long. And how can I stay connected with family between now and the next holiday? Well, this is how. Legacy Box. Start your new year off right by giving your aging home movies, photos, and film reels a modern update so they're organized and easy to share with your friends and family. Legacy Box makes reconnecting with your past and your family to talk about your past as easy as pressing play. Now, I did this. I got my legacy box. I filled it with old videotapes and DVDs, and I got it back, and we laughed. So some of the stuff I put on there was, it was me doing trial team training when I was a very young lawyer, and you should have seen what a baby I was, first of all, and I still have my lawyer hair, and my kids got such a kick out of me, like fumbling around the courtroom and trying to seem like a serious person. (laughs) Anyway, it could just be something like that where you have fun, or it could be something more important like the birth of your child, you know, what have you. Uh, With Legacy Box, you can have all that footage organized and preserved quickly and easily. It's shockingly simple. Use their kit to safely send in the moments you want preserved, create a digital collection by hand, that's what they'll do, and then it all comes back to you, stored on the cloud, a thumb drive, or a DVD, along with your original media. You go to LegacyBox.com slash MK to take advantage of this limited time offer and get 40% off. This exclusive offer will not last long, so order their kit now, send it in whenever you're ready. Go to LegacyBox.com slash MK and save 40% off while supplies last. This is actually one of my problems um, in these universities who are kicking out incoming freshmen for some sin, some loser in the person's social circle dug up and forwarded on to ruin their academic careers before they get started on them. You know, because now we're in that phase of life where we're supposed to rat out our neighbors for any perceived misstep on race, on gender, on identity, all this stuff. So you have a young person who made a mistake when she was 14 and it comes out when she's 17 or 18 as she's about to go off to some esteemed university. And the universities more and more are pulling the admission of these young kids. What a loss of a teachable moment. And exactly the opposite is actually being taught, which is what person who loses their entire future at a university they worked hard to get into 
because they're being told they're a racist because of some stupid comment they said. What person then says, you know what? I'm with you. I'm genuinely on your side now. I'm listening to you and I want to be more like you and listen more and read what you want me to read. Totally open-minded to you. No, exactly the opposite happens. Exactly. I, you, I totally agree. And it's, I don't know. I mean, it's, it, it, you know, some of the most moving stories and that give me the most hope for America are about redemption. I mean, that's what we should be looking for. There's this guy, I can't remember his name. His last name is Black, I think. And I think he's the maybe like grandson of the Grand Duke Ku Klux Klan person or something like that. And he went through this metamorphosis in college. Basically, he went in this rabid, um, you know, neo-Nazi and some roommate, not knowing, I invited him to Shabbat and then he met a young yes. woman. And, I had him on my show at NBC. Oh, I had amazing. both of these guys on my show. Exactly. And that's what we should be encouraging. You're right. And if you start rooting them out and also I, I, anybody who has children, you know, this is a, this is just, this, I actually think it's not sustainable because at a certain point, um, at a certain point, everybody's going to look at their own kids and realize, oops, is it over now? He, he did this stupid yeah. thing at 13. Is it over? And if there's <laughs> got to be a self-correction mechanism. I mean, of course, because it's like, of course, all of us make stupid mistakes and we just oh, yeah. didn't grow up in the era of social media and this weird, you know, snitch on your neighbor mentality. But by the way, yeah. uh, to your point about the great grandson of the KKK grand wizard. So he came on and and uh, with with the guy who helped him, who was uh, an Orthodox Jewish guy, and he just started inviting the descendant of the grand wizard to dinner at his house, to Shabbat dinner. And I asked him, so did you try to disabuse him of his notions, you know, about Jewish people, about what, about uh, black people? And he said, not at all. No, we just talked about life and love and college. And over time, the guy just came to the realization that he had been fed a bill of goods, that it wasn't true what he'd been taught about minority groups like Jewish people and came to that conclusion for himself out of the love and kindness and friendship he was receiving from someone in that group. Exactly. That's exactly your point. That if you really want to change people and persuade people, you don't out them and then target them and then shame them. That's just going to make them entrenched and sometimes go underground and become more radical. Um, Mm -hmm. and, And going back to your original question about tribalism, people are like, is this so depressing, Amy? Are we all so tribal? And But I, I have all these studies at the back of the book that are really hopeful that demonstrate um, kind of scientifically what you were just talking about, that if you can pull people out of their tribes, even just for a short time and say, okay, don't talk about politics, don't talk about this, just talk about your pets and ice cream and pizza and your children and sports. It, it takes such a short time for humans to connect on a human level. You know, I mean, it's people, I mean, I'm an optimist. I think people are basically good, you know. Uh, and when, so yes, if we really want to bring people together and if you really think the other side is terrible, you want to change their mind, you should be doing exactly what your your guest did, which is just don't scream and yell and target and shame, but just, just try to be a human being. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it's hard not to do it on the other side, too. By the way, my yes. smart producer is just letting me know the guest's name was Derek Black. David Duke was his godfather. Uh, right. And his his father was a grand wizard of the KKK. So, that, I mean, there's pretty intimate connections to the KKK. And he managed to extract himself. Um, but I think it's easy to, you know, having been on the receiving end of that kind of targeting, I think th- there's also a fight in your own heart not to give in to bitterness to continue to 
use a generous lens on the other side that's saying the awful things about you. Because if you don't use the generous lens, then negativity breeds more negativity and you, you know, bitterness will set in. And the more you lean into your tribal mentality and the demonization of huge groups of people, the more alienated you're going to be. Yeah, you know, I, I see you as such a kindred spirit this way, because of course it's human nature to just hold a grudge and be angry. For me, I found it to be true, even at a personal level. Sometimes I would get so angry. I would see stuff said about me or even worse about my family. With If it's about mm-hmm. me, I can take it. But when I see stuff about my, my children, my daughters, I just start burning up and get all these vengeful feelings. And then I realized when I get in that state, Megan, I'm awful. Like I'm awful to be around. And I also can't write. <laughs> I can't write. Mm-hmm. I can't be productive. I just, so even again, just purely strategically, I thought you just you let it go. You know, it's just a terrible state of being. Just be generous, take a deep breath. And I've tried to live by that. I got it from my, mm-hmm. my parents. And I, that's actually the first piece of advice I give young people. Just like, let it go. Um, don't, don't be bitter. And th- now we're really going down the rabbit hole, but I, I will share a story with you that I, for me, it was very illuminating as a woman, as a human. Um, back when I was in between marriages, my, you know, my many marriages. No, I've only had two. Um, <laughs> so my first marriage had broken up and I was separated from Dan, had not yet met Doug. And I decided to get some counseling. This woman actually helped me decide that I was going to leave my first marriage. She was a relationship counselor. And so she was wonderful and really transformed my life and my thinking about a lot of things. But I went to her for individual therapy and shortly into the relationship, she was like, you know, you could really benefit from some group therapy. I was like, how fucked up am I? Like, how how many times a week am I going to be coming here? (laughs) And um, she said, it's a lot. It's women who are all going through the, you know, a big breakup or a relationship crisis. And I think hearing their stories would help you. So I was like, okay, I'll do it. So I went and that's what I thought we were going to talk about, the guys and whether we all wanted to break up or stay together. And there was some of that, but it turned into also an inward look at ourselves, at the way we approach friendships, at the way we approach other women and had some profound discussions there. And one of the discussions was about how I had always felt like when I walk into a room with other women, they don't like me, that that instantaneously I was disliked. And maybe that had been true, maybe it hadn't, but that it wasn't even appearance so much as confidence. Sometimes when you project confidence as a person, oh, yeah. it can be threatening to others, right? Especially if they oh, don't feel confident. There's so much envy of you, Megan. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I, uh, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. And sometimes I have to talk to myself about it because I feel bad. I'm like, why? I feel like everybody hates me. Look at my, I'm looking at Twitter. Oh my gosh. And these are yeah. people who don't even know me. And it's lethal. It's so deadly and toxic and like, oh, and, and vicious. Like I, you deserve your daughters to commit suicide and all this terrible stuff. And, and I, I've thought about it a lot myself. So how did that go? So I, I talked about it openly. I, I confess yeah. that to these women. I was, I was already on television at the time. I was like a first year at Fox or maybe second year. And, um, one of the women did me the favor of crying and telling me in her case, it was true. She said, I, I do feel threatened. I wouldn't want to go out 
for a drink with you. I would feel like you would get all this attention and I wouldn't get any and you would think you were better than me and I wouldn't like the way I felt around you. And then I started crying because she, she was giving me a gift of honesty and I got the chance. She gave me the chance to confess to her. That's not at all how I am, how I'm riddled with self-doubt. And while I know I project very confident and I, in general, I'm a confident person, I have just as many insecurities as anybody else and am clamoring for approval just like any other human. So we bonded. And the end result of all of this was my lady Amy, she was the therapist, helped me and the other gals see the more you can walk into a room thinking not they all hate me or they're all going to hate me, but thinking instead they're all going to love me. The more you will get that back from that group and from life. And on a, on a much larger level, I think that's what we're talking. Like if you could find a way out of the tribal instinct and try to look generously at the other side and say, what if they loved me? M maybe we could make some progress. You know, when I got back, um, I'll talk, tell you later, but I had this weird medical crisis. But when I get got back um, to school after this really turbulent time when there were all these protests and it was another one of my firestorms, I remember going into a class um, and then a bunch of students said to me, oh, gosh, during office hours, you can't believe it. All these people on the wait list for your class, you know, they, they were about to snitch. Like they were the ones actually saying terrible things about you and protesting. And I said, stop. I said, I don't care. I don't want to hear anything. I don't want to know any. I want to give every fresh clean slate. I like everybody. If they'll give me a chance, I'll give them a chance. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it worked That's out great, so good. you know. Yeah, that's so perfect. Well, don't you find in life, sometimes you run into that person who is just dying to tell you all the negative things people have said about <laughs> you, right? Especially when you're younger and you really need to eliminate those people from your lives. I remember in law school, there was a gal, she sat next to me because we sat alphabetically and she would just tell me all the time about like, this one doesn't really like you or this one said that about you. Or oh my that. And gosh. finally I looked at her and I was like, you know what? Do me a favor. Don't tell me any more of those things. I don't need to know those things. I told my daughters, I was like, you know, you don't be surprised that what kind of tiger mom advice I get, but this is a big one. I was like, I've discovered late in my life that there are basically two kinds of people. The ones that after you leave them, I mean, no matter how the conversation felt, you feel worse about yourself. For some reason, you just mm -hmm. feel bad. You know? And then the other half you leave and, you know, you could have been talking about, you know, potatoes, but you just feel better about yourself. And I was like, you mm -hmm. always want to be the second kind of person. It's <laughs> you so know, true. that's so important. Yeah. I'll tell you the epilogue to that, that story about the woman I went to law school with. So I, I told her to stop telling me that stuff, that I didn't appreciate it and it wasn't good for me. And she took offense and flash forward to the end of the uh, semester and, and we walked in and we we're trying to find our seats and she had already seen the seating chart. And as I say, we always sat next to each other. So I saw her at the back of the class and I said, do you know where we're, where we're sitting? And she goes, figure it out yourself. And I looked at her and I said, shove it up your ass, which is a great phrase. We should use it more often. I advocate for it. <laughs> it felt so good. I think also when you talk about it, it can be inspiring. I've, I've had conversations with students that are very illuminating for me too, because I get the same thing, which is, wow, you're so strong. You know, how can you just keep picking yourself up? And when you hear these things being said about you and how do you do that? And I, I, when I explained to them the process, I was like, oh, you don't realize, like just 10 minutes before I came into this room, I was like in bed under the covers, not sure I could deal with it, you know, pounding mm -hmm. the pillows just, and, and d the decision to like, you know what, I'm going to put on a nice suit and actually present myself. You know, it's, 
it, a lot of that's hard. You just have to kind of make yeah. yourself, and it's not like it's automatic. I'm a, I'm a, this is easy for you. I'm a such quote unquote strong person. It's, it's not, it's really, as you say, it's, it's, it's difficult. It's a struggle. And half the battle, as you point out, is just doing it, getting yourself up and then doing it. Even if it goes poorly, putting yourself back out there after a big challenge matters, matters in the perception of others and, and just in general. Okay. So getting back to our tribalism discussion, what, what do we do about it now? So Trump, you know, Trump has lost the election and the, the, the country's very divided. It's not going to go away just because, I mean, he's not going away. He's still going to be the voice of the Republican party for a long time. So what, what's going to happen since you have studied other countries who get like this with the market minority majority or however you phrase yeah, it, market dominant what, hap- right. what happens next in those countries? Well, here's the crazy optimist in me, um, which I can't believe I can maintain teaching at Yale Law School. But I, I just think we have this extraordinary um, magic formula in this country. And I think it's because I'm an immigrant kid. We've talked about our similar backgrounds. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but it, I mean, I know you're not an immigrant, but just similar kinds of uh, upbringing. But, you know, yeah. I think my parents came from another country that was just so much worse. They were the Chinese in the Philippines. Um that I was just kind of raised like, this is such an amazing country. So I think that the fact that our national identity is not rooted in blood or a certain race or a certain religion, but rather our constitution is going to save us. I I think it's going to take a long time. It's going to be, we're going to have many, many rough years um, because we're going through growing pains. And some of it is really, honestly, a lot of previously silenced voices are finally getting to express themselves. And that's good. And it feels very turbulent. But when you say what do should we do going forward, um, one crazy, well, I, I don't think it's so crazy, but the kinds of things that I think would be great for this country to bridge the divide between the cosmopolitan elites and kind of the rest of the country or Trump's base is this idea that people on the both the right and the left of the political spectrum have started to suggest, and that's the idea of like a, a national service program whether, you know, maybe voluntary, but so you've got kids. So a lot of kids right after high school now, especially coastal elites, they take a gap year and it's wonderful. They usually go to Australia or Amsterdam or Guatemala and they do amazing things. And, but the thing is they often go with their same kind of elite bubble. Like they're still with Mm -hmm. their same friends and they go Mm -hmm. do amazing things. So what about, let's say after high school, you you know, people, young people are encouraged to, if you're from New York or San Francisco, to go to another part of the country, you know, Kentucky or Ohio or somewhere where you would never go and and sort of interact on some kind of public service project, you know, build planting trees or building something, housing because of the pandemic. Um, but side by side with somebody, not in a condescending way, not like I'm gonna teach you, but just, you know, and I think some program like that, because we don't have the draft anymore. It used to be that the, the draft actually served this function. This is an interesting thing about the Vietnam War that was terrible for so many reasons. One very positive thing that I write about is that it actually, for the first time, brought Latino Americans and African Americans and Polish Americans and Irish Americans all together. And you know, there are these inspiring quotes that when you're, you know, afraid for your life, you're in this dark cubby being shot at, you look to the person to your left and right, you don't care what class they are, what accent they have, the color of their skin, you know, um, and that was actually a great bonding moment. So if we can try to replace that with some sort of program where young people from more elite backgrounds can actually interact as human beings uh, with people from other parts of the country, I think that kind of thing would be a great start. I love that. I mean, I, we've, 
we think about it now because of our kids. You know, I didn't grow up in any sort of elite circles, but now becoming a member of the media and then earning some dough, it kind of puts you there. And I do not want to raise those kids. I don't want kids that turn out like that. And so Doug and I, you know, we talk about it all the time. Like, how do you how do you make sure because they see the trappings of wealth that they don't think too much of themselves? Number one, we always make sure they know they have nothing. They have, they have right. no money. He, he and I have money. They got they got nothing. Good luck. Right. That's <laughs> Number two, we don't, you know, in our summers, nobody stays in New York in the summers. Everybody leaves New York City because it's hideous. Um, we don't go to the Hamptons. We don't go to any sort of rich communities. We've been hanging out at the Jersey Shore. And it's a privilege to have a summer place. Don't get me wrong. But it was by design that we chose to live you know, on a crowded street with our home right in the mix of things next to people who you know are cops and firefighters and teachers and real estate agents and not, you know, you have to w- walk the red carpet just to get out to dinner at night. You know, we already freaking have that in New York. We don't we don't want our kids to think that's real life because it's not a quick story. Um, somebody really, really wealthy that I don't know very well, but, you know, that again, like through this lecture, Tiger Mom stuff, I meet interesting people and a billionaire's wife um, carting around their really cute kids, but in co- private planes and everything said, okay, um, invited me to dinner, said, tell me one important tip, just one crucial secret, you know, because look at these kids. I, I, I want to be a Tiger Mom. And I'm seeing them float around in these private jets and everything um, with all these tutors. And I said, make them take out the garbage. And she laughed. She's like, okay, but seriously, what should I do? Like, should I, you know, these tutors? I was like, no, I'm being totally serious. I was like, if you, I I had my biggest fights with my daughter, Lulu, about taking out the garbage, which was actually hard for me because I'm such a type A person that I love taking out the garbage myself. (laughs) Um, But it was just like what you're doing. You know, it's like, it was important for me to, not get them too big for their britches, you know, like, Mm -hmm. you don't have people catering to you. And if you can't do this, um, you know, life is difficult. So yeah, little story. Well, I I think about it as they get older, because, you know, obviously, I like you have a bunch of connections. So if I if I've really wanted to hook my kids up with some summer internship in, you know, some senator's office, I'm sure I could. But I'm really hoping that I can get them to shovel fish guts at the local fish market in New Jersey, where we go. I really want that to be on my kids' resume of life. You know, that they they immerse themselves in a job where they got their hands dirty and they figured it out. Because that's that's also part of development. You know, it can't all be model UN. Oh my God. To be perfectly honest, I actually think it's going to benefit even strategically. You just have too many elites all doing the same things. And it's obvious that it's through a connection. So so mm-hmm. not just for personal, honest development, but um, I think that's I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, you will find that it's hard, though, because I'm, you know, quite a bit older than you, because if you if you grow up with humble beginnings like I did, I mean, not dirt poor, but, you know, we I, I always had to wear the fake Adidas with four stripes. Yes, right. And they were so yeah. ugly. So, <laughs> I, so, and, you know, and I just never got the nice thing. So when, because we love our children so much, we want them to have what we didn't have. So mm-hmm. I think that you will find that, you know, you almost have to control yourself because you, our natural instinct as parents is we want to give them what we didn't have. And I, I, I had yeah. to always resist that instinct. 
I find myself often telling them we can't afford it. We can't afford it. We can't afford it, whether it's true or not, just because I want them <laughs> to get used to that in life, you know, and I know people teach their kids how to budget and all that. I don't, I don't do that. I'm not much of a budgeter myself. I never have Me too. been, Me too. Um, but I, I do want them to understand the world doesn't come to you very easily. And it's really about hard work. And then we'll get to your philosophy because yeah. you're the queen of that in a minute. <laughs> but just to take a step back before national service Corps, cause I love that idea. If we don't do anything, if we don't do anything about this problem, I know in the book you say we're we're going to see an erosion of trust in institutions. Check. We're going to see an erosion of trust in electoral outcomes. Check. Keep in mind, folks, she wrote this book two years ago. Um, we're going to see lurches toward authoritarianism. Check. We're going to see an elite backlash against the less educated working class or deplorables. Check. And above all, we're going to see the transformation of democracy into an engine of zero-sum political tribalism. So if that's where we stay, zero-sum political tribalism, nothing gets done politically. We don't reach across the aisle as humans and friends. We retreat more and more. And what happens next? Because I heard Rush Limbaugh not too long ago talking about People are talking about secession now. <laughs> like we're just going to have to retreat into different states and say goodbye to this whole project we call the United States. Yeah, it's really dangerous. And uh, I mean, I am, I am sort of impressed that I called it right. <laughs> you know, because I actually wrote yeah. that even more than two years ago. Um, it's amazing. Because again, if, yeah. So if you just kind of analyze the dynamics um, based on experience from other countries, I, I think it is a a dangerous moment. Um, I hope, I know this sounds Pollyanna, I hope that we, uh, uh, so I give talks all over the country and people are like, Amy, tell us another country that we can follow. Is there a country that, that you know, that can, whose model we can pursue so we can get out of our tribalism? And you mm-hmm. know what, Megan, they're always thinking of Canada. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> and I, you know, and I just uh, disappoint everybody. I'm like, you know what? I think we have the best model. Now, we are at a terrible moment. We, we're seeing really the worst of ourselves right now. And yes, there are dangers that we could really fracture. I, I When I talk to a lot of my friends and hear the, the actual hate in their voices and disdain and fear for the other side, I do get really depressed. But, but I think we have the best self-correcting mechanisms. So... Um, and I actually feel a little bit hopeful with this next four years. Um, so, but but we'll see. I mean, you can see that the Supreme Court, um, without getting into the details, has surprised a lot of people. I mean, you know, people, mm-hmm. I had a lot of very liberal friends that just assumed the absolute worst. Um, and instead, it's been a kind of a stabilizing force, a little boring, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, we do have a, and so when I see people trying to get rid of this and that in the government, I it's because I study countries like Venezuela and Zimbabwe and Iraq and, you know, Libya. I'm like, wait, let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater so quickly. Right. It's kind of mm-hmm. impressive that we have had one system for, albeit only just 200 years or so, but um, you know, it's, it, it's a system that I think we should be proud of. As I read what, what you've written and, you know, just sort of what has brought us together typically over the years, it, it, part of it is patriotism you know, belief in in this country and what it stands for, the idea of America. And sadly, we really have gotten away from that. That's become more of a partisan tribal thing, too. You know, Republicans love America and liberals criticize it. And if you don't criticize it, you're you're for racism. Right. It's like, wait, what? Wait, wait, how do we get there? You look back at any sort of historical movie show or read any books about history 
And you see how united the country was after World War II when we won and we believed that we had, you know, stood down Hitler and fascism. And, you know, we felt as one and we believed in our country more than ever. And of course, we had economic prosperity thereafter. But we've gotten away from that. And I don't know how to convince liberals like Democrats that it doesn't mean they're pro-racism or sexism or any ism to back the idea of America, to get that notion back into classes and schools where, because it could be a uniting force that helps reduce this tribal instinct. Yeah. You know, I, I've actually, again, more provocative things I've said. I, I wrote, uh, I was quite a while ago, I said, you know, liberals and progressives shouldn't cede patriotism um, to the Republicans, just like they shouldn't cede family values, because it's it, it's logically it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that patriotism should be more of a right wing thing. You have right. the right to define, you know, but to kind of play the devil's advocate on the other side, you know, for I think we're in a moment of redefining what our what our national identity is and for a lot of people to really believe in america and believe in the constitution those rights have to mean something to them so i totally get it you know if you belong to a certain racial group where you're like are you kidding this particular right has never played out for anybody that looks like me you're going to get cynicism so there's work to be done on both sides like we also have to you know i, I totally get what you're saying i've i've talked about education and well, I think it's great that we're not whitewashing our history anymore. I, I, I totally think it's great that we're revealing that there were a lot of flaws in our founding fathers. And, you know, that's important. At the same time, I don't think we should overcorrect. You know, we need to find a way to teach our kids America's history in a, in a way that's honest while still letting them feel that this is a special nation with something that's worth mm -hmm. fighting for and worth dying for. So, you know, I had a, a headmaster, I, again, talk about self-censoring at one of these super fancy New York schools. He's a white male, super progressive himself. But he said to me, Amy, I, I don't know what to do. All, a lot of my, the vast majority of my students think of the founding fathers as white male rapists. You know, and I can't say anything about that because I'm just going to get targeted. So what do I do? And it, it's a terrible problem. You know, it's and so, you know, I, I think that we need to figure out a way to teach um, civics in a way we can't have <laughs> because the Constitution is the only thing that can hold this country together, our history. So so mm -hmm. that's that's definitely, um, you know, something that we all need to work on. More with Amy in just one minute. But first, I want to talk to you about Legacy Box. This is an effortless way to digitally preserve your home movies and photos so that you never have to wonder where they are or whether they are safe. You know, how, like now that the holidays are over, you got two big questions to deal with. How long should the tree stay up? Mm, long, I think. Long. And how can I stay connected with family between now and the next holiday? Well, this is how. Legacy Box. Start your new year off right by giving your aging home movies, photos, and film reels a modern update so they're organized and easy to share with your friends and family. Legacy Box makes reconnecting with your past and your family to talk about your past as easy as pressing play. Now, I did this. I got my Legacy Box. I filled it with old videotapes and DVDs, and I got it back, and we laughed. So some of the stuff I put on there was... It was me doing trial team training when I was a very young lawyer. And you should have seen 
what a baby I was, first of all. And I still have my lawyer hair. And my kids got such a kick out of me, like fumbling around the courtroom and trying to seem like a serious person. (laughs) Anyway, it could just be something like that where you have fun or it could be something more important like the birth of your child, you know, what have you. Uh, With Legacy Box, you can have all that footage organized and preserved quickly and easily. It's shockingly simple. Use their kit to safely send in the moments you want preserved, create a digital collection by hand, that's what they'll do, and then it all comes back to you, stored on the cloud, a thumb drive, or a DVD, along with your original media. You go to LegacyBox.com slash MK to take advantage of this limited time offer and get 40% off. This exclusive offer will not last long, so order their kit now, send it in whenever you're ready. Go to LegacyBox.com slash MK and save 40% off while supplies last. Before we get back to Amy, I want to bring you a feature we call Asked and Answered here at the show. Steve Krakauer is our executive producer who's got the question for us. Hey, Steve. Hey, Megan. This is a good one here. Uh, this comes to us from someone on Instagram who didn't leave us their name. So so in the future, leave us your name and we can give you credit and give you a little shout out on the, on the show here. The question, though, was great. What advice would you give someone that wants to pursue a career like yours? Don't do it. (laughs) Run. (laughs) Don't walk. Just kidding. Um, I don't know if you mean in journalism or if you just mean sort of um, like a big career in the public eye. Um, But work hard is really the the best piece of advice I could give you. Uh, Too many people don't want to do it. They want to phone it in. But the one common denominator amongst all the successful people I know is they work their tail off. That's the only way no matter what you do. And um, if you're going to be a burger flipper, be the best burger flipper that restaurant has ever seen. And soon thereafter, you you will no longer be the one doing the flipping. You will be the the one doing the hiring and you will see your paycheck go up accordingly. Don't be above any work. Go there, volunteer for everything. Do it all. Don't, don't be a diva, right? Like nothing's beneath you. You're, you're there to get your elbows dirty, greasy, um, and learn. Don't be afraid when you're young, especially to ask question, 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 question. I mean, I'm I'm not young and I'm still asking questions all the time because believe me, if you're wondering it, others are wondering it too. And better to ask than to just wonder and then later make a fool out of yourself. So I know I don't I don't know so much about seeking out a mentor. I always think it's sort of weird when somebody like asks me to be their mentor. That's something you kind of have to earn. But definitely find people you admire and try to do what they do. And if you can get to know them and ask them real questions about their approach, that would be helpful as well. I also think that when you're interviewing for a job that you really want, don't be afraid to ask for the job. Say in the interview, I want this job for the following reasons. And they better be good and they better be concise and not sound like talking points. Make them real reasons because Fox News is number one, because I believe that fair and balanced is a life mantra, not just one for a corporation, because I believe the mainstream media is way too far left. And this is the antidote. That's not at all what I said in my Fox interview. I didn't even know that it was really number one at all. I found out later. Um, But anyway, and I actually didn't totally appreciate its ideological bent, though I had some clue. Um, But have your talking points ready as opposed to just like, it's the largest company delivering packages today and hit the fortune, whatever. You don't want to do that. Say something persuasive that's real because people can smell a phony uh, and then say, I like this job so much. I want it so badly. I will accept it on the spot. If you make me an offer, I will accept it on the spot. You can negotiate salary and all that stuff later. You're going to have power later in your career after you've been the hard worker and then you can jack up your price. But in the beginning, go in there hungry, hungry for the job, hungry for life, hungry for growth. And then if you just maintain that attitude, you will rise up in whatever field you choose. You will rise up. Um, you can't help but 
rise up because too many people have a lazy attitude and want things handed to them. So you will shine by comparison and keep a humble heart. Never get drunk on your own wine. As great as you think you are, there's always somebody better than you. And as shitty as you think you are, there's always somebody worse than you. That's why I watch The Real Housewives. Can't recommend it highly enough. No, they're not bad people. They, well, kind of. Anyway, it's fun. But the point is, don't beat your up, yourself up too badly and don't lift yourself up too high. Okay? Uh, and listen, whoever you are, good luck. Coleman Hughes was on the show not long ago and, and I was saying yes. something similar. Like, how do you teach patriotism? And he said, you don't. You teach history. You teach world history and you let them see what America is and what it is compared to every other country on earth, right? Like look at our history and look at theirs. I was like, oh my God, that's it right there. All right. Let's talk about schools and education because you are at Yale Law School and I know it's like every campus, elite campus, but really every campus other than two. Um, it's very leftist and left-leaning. So First of all, just broad brush, how does that manifest in your life there? Oh, it's so completely different, even from five years ago. It's amazing. Um, there are, I used to love, the thing that I loved most about being a professor was I would see friendships developing across political lines. So at Yale Law School, every um, student starts in a small group of 16 people. And so many friendships have formed in those small groups. And so, you know, somebody we both know, J.D. Vance, you know, re poor Republican from Appalachia. I still remember he was extremely close to, um, you know, a very progressive gay woman who shared absolutely nothing in common with him. And they became great friends. That cannot happen anymore. Um, there's a conservative organization, as you know, called the Federal Society. And I used to love seeing friendships across, you know, these political lines. Now there's a concept called Fed sock adjacent. So if you're a liberal, but you have one friend who belongs to the federal society, you will be targeted and shamed and called out. You are fed sock adjacent and you are not a oh, member of the tribe. Yeah, so, yes. And, and so it just it just shuts all that down. I see obsessions with um, vocabulary policing. So don't get me wrong. There are a lot of improvements. You know, I'm glad that a lot of phrases aren't used anymore. We can all grow but I, I worry that that it's not in the spirit of unity and real progress, but more like gotcha. So I have this student who came, a transfer student, who was, again, big Democrat. Most of our students are Democrats. She's from mm -hmm. a poor place down south, and she came all ready to do good. And in this class, she raised her hand and talked about, you know, prisoners' rights. Immediately, she was a white woman, you know, Caucasian woman. Hands go up. She was called out, called out. For using the wrong term, you're supposed to say incarcerated peoples. You can't say prison, you know, uh, and oh same with if somebody accidentally says illegal alien. You know, it's not just a gentle reminder. It's that's xenophobic, you know. So I, I think that's a terrible development because instead of facilitating conversation, you just shut everything down. Um, I So I, I see a lot of self-censoring. You know, I know there's a big debate, but I can tell you students openly tell me, oh, you know, I'm not going to risk it. You know, I don't, I don't want to go up on the wall and find myself, you know, in the center of a campaign. You know, there'll be a big criminal law class where there'll be a few outspoken people. It's a very big position our, at the law schools now to be against prisons, you know, defund the police and to be against prisons completely. I'm not surprised. This is That's actually part of the Black Lives Matter uh, 
playbook. That's what that's what they're pushing for in places like Seattle. It's written down. They want to empty all the prisons, open up the jails. Well, it's it's really complicated because I it's easy to caricature everything. I mean, I actually know people who have very subtle views about what they really mean. But yes, there are some people who in these classes will, you know, if you're even in favor of prison, then you're you're going to be targeted. So I have a bunch of students who by themselves, by the way, themselves are extremely progressive saying, oh, my gosh, I would never raise my hand and even ask a question or push back. It's just not worth it. So you know, there's a lot of that kind of self-censorship. Um, mm. On the good news front, Megan, I um, I stick a big banner on my syllabus, um, and I'm not the only one, but I'm in a small minority that says, do not take this class <laughs> if you don't want this. And I'm like, this class you know, is intent on promoting vigorous debate across all different political backgrounds and spectrums. Everybody has a, an assumption to that they are not a racist or, you know, xenophobe if they say something, um, you know, don't take this class if you don't want to, to to be in that kind of environment. And I, when I said I was going to do that, a lot of my colleagues were, oh my God, first you're going to be targeted. <laughs> and also you're going to have 10 people. I had 180 person people signed up for a 60 person class. So I have a huge wait list. So I think wow. there is a giant silent majority out there that is kind mm-hmm. of squashed into silence because it's not worth it. That's the phrase. It's not worth it to, to be called out and to be, you know, suddenly find yourself in the middle of social media. But there's a craving to go back, to be able to have civil discourse, to talk to people on the other side. I really think there is. It is worth it. It is too. And there's safety in numbers because if you speak out, you won't be the only one. If you can get others to speak out with you, you'll soon see that there's a groundswell of support for positions on the other side. That's that to me is the answer to, you know, some of this far left woke stuff that's being shoved down our throats. Speak up. It's okay to push back. Some of this stuff is insane. And if we don't start calling it out, we're going to have to live with it. And especially in, in the academic institutions, it, yes, it's going to take courage to speak up and be, you know, a minority voice, basically, you know, I- ideologically minority. But do it. Grow a pair. Be a man. Be a woman. Do it. You know, I just like I, I don't have a lot of sympathy because at this point in my life, I've learned enough to know if you go along, it's still not going to save you. Just Absolutely. just stand up for what you believe in. Yeah. And it's scary. Even as a professor, when you say that I, I and I've actually done it on both sides where Somebody says something and they're immediately called out. And then I'm terrified because I realize, oh, my gosh, of you course. Know, uh, if you if you defend this person that's in the doghouse, are you going to get dragged down? And I force myself. So I think it takes. But you're absolutely right. It I, it, it works like, um, you know, this. I, I think that's the correct meaning of a, of a role model. Right. Because you're like, OK. Yeah she did it and she survived. Yeah. It wasn't that pretty, but she survived. Maybe I can do it too. Right. It's, and by the way, it's so liberating. Like now in this sort of latest iteration of my professional life, it is so liberating to go on these media tours or whatever, who's ever asking me to speak and just say what I really believe. And it's always considered provocative. I don't care. I don't care. You can see people's eyes light up and like the words are being said. They're being said out loud in a forum like this. Oh, my gosh. It's wonderful to be able to give people that feeling. I don't care if some people's feelings get hurt. I'm done bowing to that. But I know like you you have lived this because I know you spoke up in in support of Brett Kavanaugh. And you and I had an email exchange about it around the time because I also thought that was brave. And I thought what was being done to him was outrageous. You know him a bit. I think your your daughter clerked for him, one of your daughters. 
And uh, when he was on the DC circuit, right, he was on the lower court. And then again, right. I think once he, once he got elevated, but they were, they were attacking your family uh, and you took a risk. You, you spoke out. So what made yeah. you do that? Yeah. So I think it's the way I was raised. You know, my dad always taught me um, nothing is worth the price of your dignity, you know, and um, and also I was kind of raised just to be loyal to my friends. Maybe this goes back to tribalism, but the, the media got it so wrong. Like everything is backwards. Actually, what happened was, believe it or not, um, you know, Brett Kavanaugh was known to be a very moderate Republican and he was a darling of Yale Law School. He was invited for 10 years during admissions week to come and talk to Yale Law Women, the Black Students Association. He was like this favorite alumni. Um, that's not what you'll think anymore. But I actually wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. And again, this is all, the facts are all wrong in the media, but you can find it. You know, it was in the summer, right after he was nominated, before any of the scandal came out. And it simply um, didn't talk about his political views, but defended him as a mentor. Uh, and I just quoted a bunch of my students. And frankly, all the students I ever sent to him were uh, liberals, actually. And they all, to a one, just said he was the best mentor. Um, and then... All of the, um, and my daughter was hired before that in 2016, before Donald Trump was elected. And I had nothing to do with it. I recused myself. And I disclosed that in the Wall Street Journal article. But then crazy life happened um, in 2018. I taught my first class in August 28th, thinking, oh, another new semester. And that night I was seized with a terrible pain and I was rushed to the emergency room. The next thing I know, I was at ICU. All of my organs start collapsing. My lung collapsed. I had eight tubes put in me. I was unconscious for a week and in the hospital for three weeks. That it was a freak medical thing. There was a, they found when they finally opened me up, a two centimeter hole in my colon that was releasing all these toxins. I was going to septic shock. But right then, this is September 2018, suddenly there are these scandalous things about Amy Chua told people to look like models in interviews. It was so ridiculous because first right. of all, he's a Federalist Society judge. They're the most conservative judges. There's a uniform. When you interview, you have to wear a dark suit and low heels. And totally. it was like the opposite. And it was just, yes. it, it's like, if I were going to give, give crazy advice like that, that's not the way it would be. It's just so ridiculous. It but is ridiculous. Then, but then I was in the hospital under oxycodone, I mean, toxin, and there were all these boomers, like Amy, she was faking her illness. <laughs> uh, so she doesn't have to, but we came out of it. And I'm proud that, you know, that I, there were all these calls that, you know, renounce him. I felt like cultural revolution in China. You have to denounce him and renounce this. Mm -hmm. And I just said, no, you know, and then the people at school said, okay, you may not be able to teach properly. There might be protests. You may not get, even though I was always one of the most popular teachers, maybe there'll only be three people that will take your class if you don't issue an apology. And I said, you know what? I'm a great apologizer, but I will not apologize for something I didn't do. I didn't say, I, I actually would have been proud to have said something like dress, look good, you know, but in this particular case, I did, it was just so ridiculous, like looking like models. Um, yeah, I so know. I, so I said, well, then if I only have two students, that's too bad. I'll start, you know, and I might, in my head, thinking of my mom and dad, I was like, I will win. I will do it the immigrant way through hard work. I will try to win the students back one at a time. And it's been a long haul, you know, there was, but I will say it, it wasn't just three students, you know, again, I taught a big, you know, I have a class of a hundred people coming up and I've loved being back. So I think if you stand up for what you believe and don't cave, it's not easy. I don't want to sugarcoat it, but it comes out the right way. At least you, 
at least you can be proud of who you are. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're a hundred percent right. You know, it's, it's hard. I'm sure extra hard because you're of course at an organization. I mean, it's, you know, academia is like media. It's almost a hundred percent liberal. And so, and it's not just enough to, you know, if you are a liberal, if you're a Democrat, you, you have to be, you know, woke, you have to be saying the right things. You have to not be saying the wrong things. And that, you know, the lack of ideological diversity in these colleges and frankly, at these lower schools now is that the, the former is a, is a, is a real, well, let me rephrase that. It's a real problem. It's a problem at the lower schools and it's a serious problem in academia now where the, the stats are like, uh, at Yale, there was a survey in 2017 saying 75% of the Yale professors say they're liberal, less than 10% say they're conservative. I don't know what the others are, uh, yeah. but it's probably even lower than that, honestly. And yeah. um, I don't even know, like, if you are conservative, why would you want to go teach at a university like that where you're surrounded with people who not only don't think like you, but they don't like you? Yeah, it's 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 definitely difficult. I, I mean, again, I am proud. I first of all, I'm lucky that I teach a class called contracts and also international business transactions. So mm-hmm. we're it's it's like so bland. And but um, I because I'm a minority woman, I always have a huge progressive block of immigrants, kids, and minorities, and I love that they're really progressive. But what I'm proud of is I'm one of the only classes where I also have a really large group of federal society students. So this just past semester, I had, I think, 14 Federal Society conservative students, and then like, you know, 45 super liberal people of color. And <laughs> uh, it worked. Like, if you just lay down the ground rules, there were some tense moments. I won't be, I, you know, I'll have to be honest. But again, if I just, I'm like, you lay down the rules. I stand up for who think I think needs standing up for, facilitate the conversation. You know, I made it work. And um, I mean, that's the academic project. That's why people people came to law school to want to debate the other side and to hear mm-hmm. the position and to learn how to articulate your position. And if you just stamp out any dissension or you refuse to listen to the other side, it just defeats the purpose. Is it, do you feel like it's, has it gotten any better on that? You know, because certainly the last I heard, the college campuses were all about the safe spaces and you couldn't have honest conversations about, you know, these issues. Like, God forbid you try to talk about race used to be just like abortion or religion, um, gay rights, you know, now it's crossed over into like gender and race or these third rails and nobody can talk about. And I, I just wonder because of course, academia and frankly, again, media, those are the places, exactly the places you should be talking about those things and exploring different ideas and testing your own assumptions. Yeah, I'm not going to say it's gotten better yet, <laughs> but I, I I hope that we're going to turn a corner soon because partly this is a crazy thing to say. It's getting so untenable. I mean, you just see people who were throwing out flamethrowers themselves getting sucked into it. Then they become the targets. And at, at some point, there's just nobody left. Um, you know, when I see all the people that have been canceled and it's just a larger and larger pool at some point, you know, I think <laughs> the, the, the term of having been canceled is just takes on a different meaning. I mean, Coleman Hughes has talked about this. Um, uh, so, no, I, it, it was definitely still in the middle of this. Um, you know, of course, President Trump, whatever, he, just he, he was a, a inflammatory figure. So maybe at least one thing is that the temperature will be reduced a little bit, even though a lot of the same dynamics are still underlying. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I'm just hoping that maybe we'll. And I also think people are exhausted, Megan. I I really think, again, I believe in the silent majority. You know, I go to these dinner parties. I, I, I talk to large student groups. I'm like, wait, where are you guys? How come only voices I hear loudly shrieking are so unreasonable? And I've got this group of 100 people. You all seem lovely. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, I think I do think they're going to speak up more and more. And I, and I have I take comfort in believing it's we had a guest recently who was saying the truth will win out truth. I think it was Andrew Sullivan was saying truth wins out in the end over lies. And 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 we just have to wait for that because we're being spun a lot of dishonest information on these subjects right now. And I think over time, more and more people will speak out. You know, you've got scientists leaving through the profession of science so they can be be able to speak freely. If that's what has to happen, then that's what has has to happen. Um, but I think we're going to get there. All right, let's talk about tiger mothering. <laughs> this is so fun. So I, I, I'm very non-judgmental, and I know you are too. You're not saying you must yeah. be like me um, when it comes to how people mother their children. But I'm fascinated, and I think you gave us all a gift in writing that book, Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, just because it's a window into somebody else's approach and somebody who a has a very successful academic history herself, double Harvard, undergrad in law, and now is teaching at Yale Law. And then as we know now, we didn't when you wrote the book, you have two daughters who you work to the bone, but they both went to Harvard undergrad. One went to Harvard Law, one went to Yale Law. So boom, the proof is in the pudding in terms of academic achievement. Um, let me just start with an encounter I had with you, which is literally one of my favorite stories. So I met you a couple of years ago and we were talking a little bit about the book. And I, and I was like, I get it. You know, you, you, know, you were tough and, and really sort of rode them and they got these perfect grades. And, you know, of course, the criticism of the book is, but, but what about their happiness? And you said, I know, I know. Whenever I hear someone ask that question, I think to myself, yes, another one down. Like I'm in love with her. I love it. I love it. Your competitiveness, your open owning of academic competition. You don't really care. You're going to do it. So <laughs> do you think, do you think that now having the girls, you know, become so successful academically, do you have any regrets about it? Well, I do. I mean, not big regrets. I, I would say that the thing I'm most proud of is actually not their academic credentials, but the fact that we were really close that we, and I, I see, I know how you are with your kids. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, if I if I if my kids didn't want to come home and bring their friends and if I didn't feel they talked to me, I, I would have counted myself as a failure. So that was mm -hmm. the most important thing. And I love my own parents, too. Um, and the funny thing about the Tiger Mom book is, yeah, I, mean, I am super tough and I'm still tough. But the book, the whole book was a little bit misunderstood because it was actually written because my younger daughter rebelled my younger daughter Lulu, yeah. in such a big way that the last third of the book was not funny. I, I think the first two thirds is funny. Not everybody gets it. But the last third is like, oh my God. I mean, you know, talk about, it, it was just dark as many parents with adolescents know where I just, it was just horrible. I, I felt like she hated me. Where I was going to lose her and terrible things. And so I actually wrote it in a moment of crisis. So, so my own view is actually more nuanced than the media suggests. I do still believe that self-esteem, real self-esteem, real confidence has to be earned. Um, so I would love it if I could have just said to my kids, you're amazing, you're amazing, you're the smartest, you're the most brilliant, and they would then be happy. This goes to your happiness point. That that would have been so much easier. But I, I, I actually think happiness is so elusive. Like how do we help our kids to be happy when they grow up? Mm -hmm. And I sure don't have the answer, but I also do know that being having not the skills or the confidence to get what you want in life is not a recipe for happiness. Um, being given everything and, and having an aimless feeling like you have no goals is not a recipe for happiness in life. So, so it's complicated what, what parenting is. Um, I've been humbled many, many times. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm sort of like a, a still a tiger mom. My daughters will confirm that. But now that they're so much older, um, you know, in a much more nuanced way. Like one of the things I learned is that you have to, I used to think, oh, that's a waste of time. That's a waste of time. One of my biggest lessons learned after my kids became 15, 16 and went to college is that sometimes you need to waste time. Like sometimes you need to waste a lot of time. <laughs> so like, oh my God, I who just, are you and what have you done with Amy? That's, this is not you talking. This is oh, not. no, no. There's a, there's an ulterior motive. Like my younger daughter would just get, not get out of bed. And I would be like, oh my God, we have these papers too. And this, like, what am I going to do? And then fiendishly, I would finally said, let's go take a walk. And my daughter is the slowest walker. No one moves her slowly. You know? um, I am such a fast paced person, but you know, so we're like crawling around at snail's pace. But after this so-called waste of time, she felt better and finally at her own tempo would actually pull out a piece of paper, you know? So, um, I mean, there's, there's just also, you just, there's uh, another thing I learned is your kids and your, there's only so much you can do. They are who they are. You know, um, mm -hmm. my kids are still exactly the same people they were when, as they were when they were one, you know, a year old, same personalities. Well, let's talk about what uh, some of the things that, you know, you did as a mom to raise okay. these incredibly successful daughters. So you lay it out in the book and I'll just read the list and then you can sort of explain what the okay. goals were. Um, you, you start off by saying, look, how did Chinese parents raise such stereotypically successful kids? Well, here are some things my kids were never allowed to do. Attend a sleepover, have a play date, be in a school play, complain about not being in a school play, watch TV or play computer games, choose their own extracurricular activities, get any grade less than an A, not be the number one student in every subject except for gym or drama, play any instrument other than piano or violin, not play the piano or violin. Those are the things they were not allowed to do. So <laughs> I love it. It's so fun. What what was the goal? Like, what's the goal in in setting down that those rules? So first of all, as you could see, it's a little bit tongue in cheek. Um, I yes, my, yes, my kids did get some sleepovers and play dates, but I stand by that list. I will say that that same list was applied to me, not in a joking way, by my own parents. And when I mentioned Chinese parents um, in the book, I defined it as actually including like Nigerian parents and Jamaican American parents and Korean. Mm -hmm. no. So it's actually a little bit of an immigrant kid phenomenon. So the goal, some of that is um, actually benightedness. Like, um, so my mother wouldn't let me do sleepovers when I was little because she came from a foreign country. And I still remember her looking at me when I asked to have a sleepover. She was like, but Amy, I don't understand we have a bed here for you. Why do you want to go to someone else's house to sleep? You know, because she was an outsider. She didn't know these people. She was worried about kidnappers, you know? Um, so some of it is just literally kind of ignorance. And I actually am a bit, when I go give talks in China, I give the opposite advice. Like you don't want to raise a, a robots. You need people to know how to socialize. But I think there's a balance, like exactly how many play dates does a person need? for them to be social, you know, um, and it also American schools are very different from say schools in Korea. And I think the ones in Asia are so terrible. You just, you know, you just work all day that, you know, I'm always like, they need some time to off on weekends, but the, the kind of really touchy feely school I sent my kids to actually felt like a giant play date. You know, the whole day. Um, you know, they didn't even do like math equations. It was just like blocks and puzzles and things like that. So, so, but I, the goal ultimately is back to self-esteem. Like I think the way that a lot of immigrant parents think is I, there's a line in my book. I'm like, you know, we, there are different ways that 
we all love our kids and we all want them to be happy and strong, but there are different ways of doing it. And the way a lot of immigrants think about it is I need to prepare them for the future. You know, they're only going to be children a certain amount of time. I need to arm them with the skills and the confidence and the grit that they need so that when they fail, they have it in themselves to pick themselves up again and try again and again, because that's going to be life. Mm -hmm. You wrote Chinese parents assume strength, not fragility. I like the way you put that. I mean, sometimes I feel like I'm too lax with my kids, you know, because they're so sweet. You don't want to hurt their feelings. And I have to remind myself you know, it's okay to say, don't do that. You, you're better than that. Do better. Yeah. And it's, it's, I still believe in that, that we should assume strength, not weakness in our children. But I will be the first to say that parenting is not a science, but an art. Like I'm always trying to calibrate, you know, and when I mentioned this dark phase, I fell into with my younger daughter, you know, I would say one of the lessons I learned is you have to listen as a parent. So you have to, you know, your our children are so smart, I get so they know how to play us, right? So you're right. Like sometimes my mm-hmm. my they they would always know just the right words. Like they would you know, certain kind of mental illness, and we're like, oh my God, you can have anything you want, you know, <laughs> or, or I'm sad. Oh my God, you know. Um uh, and but but having said that, um it is tricky. Like I I've I've made tons of mistakes where I just I had to have my oldest daughter or or vice versa. Somebody said, you know daughter X is not feeling good at all and you're not listening. And, you know, so then I change. Um, So I I think the baseline should be that we assume that our children are not just these fragile people that will fall apart if you give them any criticism, because once they go out into the real world, there's just going to be a lot of criticism. And there's a lot of things they're not going to get that they want. Um, Mm -hmm. But I, I, yeah, I I think it's, it's a, I've been humbled many times where, um, you know, my, my daughters will say, you know, you made me feel bad for these years. And I feel we've had long talks about it. I, I'm like, I don't remember you feeling that bad. And they're like, oh, that's because you weren't listening. So, you know, you're, I, I yeah, feel you strike, so lucky. Let's strike yeah. the balance. But I, just for the record, what I hear, you, I hear you being kind of defensive on the book. And I think it's sad because you shouldn't have to be defensive on the book. I think it's awesome that you you raised them the way you thought was best for them. They turned out great. You have very solid relationships with them both. But I almost feel like you must have been shamed a lot by other moms and the media for your parenting style. And you shouldn't you shouldn't have been. Yeah, well, I do stand by it. Um, uh, So thank you for that. Um, You know, I I actually uh, do. Yeah, it it really was not written as a how to guide, but I but so it's it's this weird thing. Like I wrote it, believe it or not, I thought it was going to be an interesting work of literature. <laughs> uh, it was like a memoir. Um, so, but yeah, but thank you. I, I am proud of the girls that I raised. I you know I don't say it's for everybody. I like the way you began this. I mean, I'm a teacher. I have seen so many brilliant students. They come from every possible different parenting background. I mean, some no, but you can take the, from yeah. it what you you can take from right. it what you will, right? Like exactly. I, I do think my general approach, other than being tough, like I don't I I don't coddle them too much. You know, it's like I I like you. I don't say every two lines on a scratch of paper or like the next Picasso. It's like eh, it looks fine. Um, so I don't do that. But I think I'm I'm too relaxed. Like I went to Syracuse undergrad. I went to Albany Law School. These are not. I mean, with all due respect to them, these are not top tier academic institutions. 
And in the end, it all worked out fine for me. And I probably made more money and had more success than a lot of people who wound up going to Harvard. Right, which is the moral of that story. (laughs) Well, so so like I do have that perspective on it. Like, eh, if your kid doesn't get into those schools, it can all work out as long as they figure out what they're really good at and then and then apply themselves. So like all successful people, I do work very, very, very hard. Um, That's the one key thing all successful people have. So and but you what you I see you doing is training your children to work very, very hard. You're training them from a very young age. I don't see anything wrong with that. But anyway, when I look at my own parenting, I think I should probably be training them harder. You know, like I I don't know if it'll kick in for them the way it did for me. And I don't see anything wrong with like I I like the fact that you said A's, only A's. But then in the back of my head, I'm like, but what if they bring home a B? I don't think I have it in me to get the hundred practice tests, as you said, and make them do it. Like, I don't know if you can half-ass the Chinese parenting. No, you can't. I mean, I think if the focus on grades gets people, you know, upset, but like, just like with papers, you know, what I, I am proud of this, like with my students, I, I, we have to resist the temptation to, for writing our, our, our kids' papers for them, because again, it's so easy, right? Oh, it's due, you know, um, and oh, they're crying and you want them to get a good grade. And so part of being, I think it, I think everything valuable is difficult and it's actually difficult just to not do it for them and make them do it. Another thing I say is like, I was like, okay, you've got to start early because, you know, I I've seen my husband at the opposite model, which is he's so smart. He would do everything at the last minute and then, you know, pull out a decent grade and feel like so heroic. But that, if you're competing against somebody who started two weeks ago, not as smart like me, you know, slowly, um, you know, the, the tortoise will beat the hare. And I'm always, I say first draft, you know, you have to assume after you finished it, that it's, you know, you, that you're 65% of the way there, that you, you're going to need mm-hmm. to begin it. So I do have very high standards um, that I think people could learn from. How did you, so you talk, there's a very funny part of the book where you, you write about um, grades and you say, if, if I'm just going to read from, uh, this is an excerpt from the journal. If a kid comes home with an A and with an A minus on a test, a Western parent will most likely praise him. A Chinese mother will gasp in horror and ask what went wrong. <laughs> if it comes home with a B, Western parents might still praise the child. Some might express some disapproval, but be careful not to cause any insecurity or inadequacy. I'm paraphrasing now. If a Chinese child gets a B, which would never happen, you say, <laughs> there would first be a screaming, hair-tearing explosion. The devastated Chinese mother would then get dozens, maybe hundreds of practice tests and work through them with her child for as long, long as it takes to get the grade up to an A. Chinese parents demand perfect grades because they believe their child can get them. Um, when I read that, I remember thinking, how on earth did she find the time to do that? You were still a working professional. You were, I think you were at Yale Law when your girls yeah, were young. I- how, how, when did you do hundreds of practice tests if they ever did come home with a beat, but, or, or, or something less than a perfect I, yeah. You know, that part, it's, it's, it's exaggerated and comical, but that part is true. Uh, it, it, it's, it's comical. And by the way, it was kind of pretty ugly with, I mean, talk about, there was a lot of unpleasant yelling and screaming. So you have to factor <laughs> that into, into whether it's worth it or not. Um, I don't know what my husband would say, but the, but I, you know, so that's another reason that I kind of am proud. Like it, this is, it's not easy to be a tiger mom this way. Like it's it's so much easier to say, oh my God, I love my children so much. I'm going out for a glass of wine with my friends, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, I think this is general, a more general point about women trying to strike this balance. Honestly, I just felt what I gave up was leeway in my life. You know, like I, I just woke up earlier and earlier. I had to be very regimented. 
um, you know, I'd see my husband at the same job as me and he'd go out for coffee with colleagues, you know, come home <laughs> two hours late or, you know, I, I just, I couldn't do any of that. So, so for me, like a lot of women, I just had to get more and more organized. I mean, I remember that I was like, I was always looking at my clock and honestly, when I look back at that writing now, I am exhausted. Like I'm much older yeah. now. I, I just would not have the energy now to do that. Right. I, I admire the energy and the commitment to it. I feel like I'm, I don't have it in me. I'm old. I feel like I just turned 50, but I'm, I'm an old oh, 50. I'm 50. tired. No, I'm so, I am. No. I'm so tired. I keep asking my primary care physician. I'm like, I, it's actually a funny story. I went to him one time and I said, I think I have Lyme's disease. And he goes, Lyme, no S. And I said, <laughs> I thought he was speaking Spanish. I said, Lyme C. He goes, I'm not speaking Spanish. Lyme is singular. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> I said, well, I think I have Lyme disease. He goes, why? I said, because I'm exhausted all the time. He goes, well, you work full time and you have three young children. You're going to be tired. I'm like, I don't think that's it. He's like, that's what it is. You, you know, whatever you're that's old you. and you, you have three young children. So I don't, I'm exhausted just thinking about, you know, like your story with the little white donkey and Lulu. I don't know. I, don't, I wouldn't have it in me to stay on her. And anyway, do you want to tell that story? Cause that's awesome. It's awesome. It's funny. Yeah. Oh, this is just my daughter, Lulu, who is so funny, but she is, we just fought like cats and dogs because her personality is very much like mine. And she was just, she was a kid born saying no, you know, she said she wasn't going to college, just all kinds of things. Uh, oh, I remember when she was in like second grade, uh, we got a call from the teacher and, and the teacher said, um, oh, your daughter, she says she's having visions. You know, it, it's she can't do oh. any of the work because she has visions. And they wanted to do neurological tests and maybe ADD and all, you know, which I, it can be very serious. But I just know my daughter. I was like, she doesn't have visions. And I said, Lulu, <laughs> those are called daydreams. <laughs> and stop it. You know, and, and on that one, I was right. Oh. Uh, but that Little White Donkey, just, it is a funny story. But basically, there was a song called Little White Donkey. It's really cute. Where the left hand and the right hand on the piano do different things. And Lulu just couldn't do it. And my husband and I had a big fight because there was a lot of screaming and yelling. And he finally pulls me aside and he's like, Amy, have you ever considered that maybe she just physically can't do it? That she's just too young and doesn't have the coordination? You know, she was like six. And I was like, oh, okay. You just don't believe in her. You just want to be loved, which is actually true. You want to take her to baseball games and, you know, water slides. And But I don't care because I believe in her. So I rolled up my sleeves. And we went back and it was ugly. You know, we went for hours of fighting and ripping up and the paper. But at a certain point, this weird thing happened. Her two hands came together and suddenly she could play this difficult piece. And it was a moment that she and I still both talk about because she looked at me and she could not believe it. She, she did not think she could do it. And when her hands came together, she would not leave the piano. She was so proud of herself. She just sat there, just wanted mm -hmm. to do it over and over again. And I've gotten so much crap for this. People have been like, oh my God, it's child abuse. She would not let her daughter use the bathroom. You know, and this was not Guantanamo Bay, right? Like, you know, little, little, Lulu would be like, can I go to the bathroom? Like every five minutes. Um, but that's right, a she great was story. using it. But that's a great story for us because she she tells the story now that when she much later, 10 years later in high school, taking a chemistry test, she would get blanks. Like she'd say, oh my God, I'm going to fail. I have a blank. I'm drawing a blank. And then she told me that I would then remember, wait, I've had this feeling before this feeling of, I absolutely know I can't do it. I can't do it. Mm -hmm. But just by sticking with it and just by not giving up, I discovered that I actually could do it. Uh, and that is actually what I think is the real secret to true inner strength, real self-esteem, that you have taught yourself at least once, you know, 
that way, yeah. you know, if I just hang in there, I actually can get a good outcome. I love that. See, I, I don't worry about uh, what would happen to my daughter if I did that. I worry about whether I, I have the energy to do it, you know, and the, and the wherewithal to do it myself. Because I, I remember reading about it and you were like, she ripped up the the score, you know, the piano score. And, <laughs> and I, I, taped I, it, I, I, I taped it back together. I put it, put it in plastic so she couldn't rip it up again. Yes. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and, Jed, and Jed was like, well, you know, the girls are different because you were you're saying your older sister Sophia could play it when she was a right. age, and and you're like, oh no, not that everyone's special in their own special way. Oh no, <laughs> <laughs> I will be the hated one. I will be the one. You don't have to do a thing. I'll be the hated one. She's gonna play it, and she did. She did. I do think too often we let our kids off the hook too early and yeah. leave them with the opposite feeling of, you know what? I was right. I couldn't. Yes, that's a perfect way of putting it. Let's talk about school in general now, like the, the broader, because I feel like the country is going in, an, in a very different way. We're getting a little softer when it comes to SATs and testing and, and schools in general, because we're starting to believe that little junior shouldn't be forced to take tests. And, you know, maybe it's going to hurt their self-esteem or their happiness level. What do you think? Yeah, I have such complicated views about this, and I, it, it might surprise you. I mean, I actually think that our entire education system is broken. Um, I, I'm a little older than you, and I, it's it's just it wasn't like this. You know, it, I, I worked hard, but it it's impossible to, to, to like. I don't even think people should be aiming for the Ivy League all the time anymore. I know that's shocking to say because you know my younger self, I was obsessed with it. I'll be the first to say that's all I could think about. But the way it is right now, and other people have written about this. It's it's almost like you can't make a, a single mistake. You know, you have a bad year in junior high school or high school. You know, because everybody has a bad year, and suddenly you can't get into top schools. You have to, everybody as a tutor, kids worrying about college at the age of twelve. It's just, I think it's crazy. And if you're, it goes back to tribalism. If you are in the middle of the country, it used to be just fifty years ago that if you could go to a state school, do pretty well. I mean, work hard, and you could make it to the coast, and you could rise. I mean, right now, you know, you, even if you're wealthy from wealthy parents, you could barely get to these top schools. So I, I think something is just deeply wrong with, I think our kids are so stressed at a much earlier age um, that, you know, I, I had super crazy strict parents and I just had all this free time. I had all this free time when I was little. Um, so I, I think that um, there's, I think this is something I agree with you about like not getting too lax. I think we should have standards. Of course, I'm so into SAT vocabulary words. I can't tell you like for a lot of immigrants and poor people, that is actually something that you can actually do by working hard. You don't have to, you know, uh, I mean, obviously wealthy people have an advantage. They can get these courses, but I, I think that words are important for power. I used to say with Lulu, when I was fighting with her about the SATs, words memorize the exact definition because words are power you need them even to fight me you need them i would i would yell at her um but i i think we need a revamping i mean something's really wrong okay so what about that yeah because you do we we see some people pushing for a lowering of standards but in the meantime we're in the midst of you know a, an epidemic with young children uh, teenagers who are on drugs and overwhelmed with stress and anxiety at the pressures of trying to get ahead in a world where all their classmates are doing the same. So what do we do about it? So I'm not an you know, expert in education, but my general view maybe goes back to my own experience with this kind of tiger parenting is I 
I don't believe in lowering standards at all. Um, I think that's going to come back to haunt uh, everybody. I mean, pe we need people who can do math and, and who can read, uh, you know, even with the new digital technology, that's not going to change. But we do need to do all these studies show that you have to start really early with children. Um, and I'm not talking about kids like yours and mine now, but but just if you really want people to have a level playing field. Um, and so I don't know, I thought a lot about like maybe there's going to be another stage in my life where I kind of focus on this, you know, because mm -hmm. I did it in such a concentrated form with my own children. Um, I, I would love to, you know, contribute back you know, to the country in a way because I, I I believe that if you just tell kids can let kids know that you believe in them and just do a couple of things right I I don't know I, you know I I'm a big education fan but I'm not answering this question very well because I I'm just not an education expert and I'm I, I'm sort because of you're despair. like I did stress out my kids and it all worked out well in yeah. the end it, it doesn't it doesn't end badly for everyone and it's gotten even worse since they were I mean they're you know they're again, they're in their 20s. And I think things have gotten progressively worse from 50 years ago to when I was in college oh, yeah. to when they oh, were can in I college. Tell you? Yeah. So we we went to one of these um, uh, like parent events here in New York where you just sit in the audience and they get people from all the private schools, kids from all the private schools. And and you don't know which school they went to, but they, they're all in high school and they all have an experience. And one of the guys who was there, he was so, so smart, so open. He goes, to the parents, his random parents in an auditorium full of people, he said, do you want to know why your kids are so effed up? Because they're all told they have to achieve perfect A's. They all have to play at least three sports. They all have to be in at least 10 clubs and they're looking for an out. They're, they're, they're on drugs because they're looking for an escape. And of course, all the parents in the audience are there like, holy shit. Oh no. Right. I like, know. I, it scares me because I, I do want to drive them and I do want them to think, to believe that they can handle a lot, but I don't want that. I agree. And I see that in my students. I, it's like a, a, a burden on them, a, 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 almost like a joylessness, which I, I think it's new. You know, it's new. It's like they come in instead of just being so excited to learn. Uh, I, mean, I don't want to over romanticize it, but it's like they from the beginning, they're worried about the next step you know, all the things that they need to do. And they're stressed, stressed, stressed. And I don't know, I just think, I know it sounds very non-tigerish, but I just think life is too short. So I, I agree with you. I think that's a real problem. And I, I think it's something new. It's a new problem, uh, you know, worse than it was, say, even, you know, five or 10 years ago. Next book is going to be Peaceful Meow of the Kitten Mom. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now let's talk about college admissions for a minute before I let you go, because it's I had to get your take on the college admission scandal. And, you know, so somebody who's at elite universities has has daughters at elite universities. Um, you went to them and you teach at one. What did you think of that? I'm sure you weren't surprised. Like most of us, most of us were, you know, mouths agape. But were you were you surprised? I wasn't surprised. Uh, I So basically the the whole college admission scandal represents the exact opposite of tiger parenting. Um, so tiger parenting, I, I had somebody uh very astute would say it's reading the book they're saying this is so strange because as a mom as a western mom I'm always I want my kids to have an easier life so I'm always like removing obstacles from them so that their life can be smoother but I see that as a tiger mom you're putting obstacles in their way you know it's like <laughs> obstacles for them to train you know um and so this college admissions thing is the extreme of non-tiger parenting where 
uh, I think it's the worst thing on, on earth. I mean, number one, you're doing it for the kids. Number two, they're not earning it. So there was zero self-esteem or inner confidence being gained from that, in addition to just completely cheating at other people. Um, so to me, I think that probably represents people who were afraid that they couldn't compete on the merits, um, you know, either with children who are naturally motivated or, I don't know, you know, immigrant kids or something. Um, mm-hmm. So, but I, I'm, I'm not, that it relates back to the previous conversation. I think there's something broke about our system that makes people so desperate that they feel they, they're, they need to do that out of, out of love for their children. Mm, right. I know. And, and it's like, it's crazy. That's, that's sort of the grift we didn't necessarily know about that gen pop, which in which I include myself when it comes to this kind of thing. Uh, we didn't know it was happening. It's the, the open grift has been more of a story where it's like a your connections over time, right? You're sort of your dad went to Yale, your grandfather went to Yale, and therefore you go to Yale. That's one thing. But people, you know, they spend people are making millions and millions of dollars of donations to these universities just to pave the path for their kids. And whenever I see that, I'm like, how does the kid in, you know, Florida, who's working so hard to be valedictorian of his high school, which by the way, you were too, um, of course, uh, how does he stand any chance? How does he stand any chance the way the systems work today and how important, you know, your ability to donate is? Yeah, it's, it's terrible. I, I agree. I mean, I, you know, inequality is a huge problem. Um, and I think for me, it's inequality of opportunity. That is the thing that I focus on. Uh, and you're exactly right. I mean, this kind of thing is the antithesis, right? It's it's the, it's the definition of an unlevel playing field where people with parents with more money and connections, um, and and to be honest, I see it all the time. I mean, and, you know, it, it's I understand the temptation like like you. I know a lot of people and, you know, we love our children. We want to help them. And I think it goes back to um, kind of needing self-restraint to telling yourself that as a parent, the best thing you could do for them is not just to make everything easier necessarily. Mm-hmm. It sort of goes back to the beginning of our conversation, which is you know, you said this broken education system stops people from moving into the elites, you know, group of the elites. Not, not that that's necessarily their goal, but the point is the elites kind of stop them from entering and yes. the system perpetuates itself, including the resentment and the tribalism that comes from these divisions, which are just so dug in. Exactly. And in both directions, you see that uh, for a lot of the people who are not the cosmopolitan elites, there's this anti-expert thing, these pointy head people, and that can be very dangerous also, you know? Uh, so, so yeah, it's a big problem, running in all directions. Well, if you want to understand how we got so divided on things like COVID even, uh, you should check out Amy's book. You should read them all, really, because you'll learn a lot, as you can tell. I am looking forward to seeing what comes next now. I want to see what the tiger grandma is like when the girls <laughs> get know. a little older. And they get married. Uh, But it's been so fun catching up. Lots of love. Today's episode was brought to you in part by ScoreMaster. See how many points ScoreMaster can add to your credit score today. Visit scoremaster.com slash MK now. And while you're online, why don't you meander over and subscribe to the show? Do I sound like a broken record? I really want you to do it. Just do it and shut me up. Anyway, it makes it so much easier for us and better for you, as Rich Lowry would say, uh, if you just subscribe to our feed and then it just keeps coming to you and uh, download the shows as well, please. 
Um, I think you should download all of them, but just the ones you like is okay too. And give us a listen and a rate and a review, a rating and a review, please. Five stars would be great. It's the new year. It's time to be generous in spirit and stars. And uh, send me a review as well. I still read them and I love them. And I love hearing from you. I'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. The Megan Kelly Show is a Devil May Care media production in collaboration with Red Seat Ventures. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.